huge news, years in the making, my brand new book that my publishers refuse to publish, Money Matrix. Beat the money system and build generational wealth. Understand the three main ways that the banks productize you and make money from you. You'll be able to turn that system against itself, build generational wealth and multiple streams of recurring income. It's all at moneymatrix.cash. And if you're quick, the first few hundred registrants and buyers will receive many special bonuses from me. The brand new Moneymaker Summit three-day special event. Meet me at a champagne reception. Meet me at a multi-millionaire networking dinner. Go now, moneymatrix.cash. This is huge. Hello and welcome to The Money Podcast. Rob has recorded over a thousand episodes on his podcast journey, but there's a few conversations and a few interviews that stand out amongst the rest. One in particular is with the Netflix co-founder, Mark Randolph. Mark is one of the most influential entrepreneurs alive today. Not did he just co-found one of the biggest tech companies in the S&P 500, but one of the biggest companies in the world. So what we've done today is done a mashup, some highlights of Rob's open conversations with Mark, and we've collated the best money lessons, money hacks, how to raise finance. You're going to learn it all in this episode. So let's just get straight into this deep dive money lesson. But remember this, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. You know, originally we thought that the thing that was going to work was purely the fact that we had a better way of finding movies. You know, that we had basically almost unlimited ways of displaying content and combining content and recommending content. And we thought somehow that would be more compelling than the experience in a video store. Now, we also thought the fact that we had a big head start because at the time, DVD was brand new. So video stores didn't carry it. And we thought those two things might be enough to jumpstart a video business. But the problem is... uh, you're right. There was due dates and late fees, and so no one wanted it. And we had to come up with a whole new model. And the one that we eventually found, which was you know, a subscription, so doing it billing bill by the month. But the bigger innovation was there was we did this no due date, no late fees model where people could take the DVDs they wanted and keep them for as long as they wanted. They let sit in their television And when they're ready to watch it, you plug it in, watch it, and then you mail it back to us and we automatically ship another one. That's a crazy, never been done before thing. And to think that I might have come up with that on day one is ludicrous. It took a long, long time and lots of experimentation to get to that. Mark, the creator economy. So, you know, the idea that all of us, myself, all of the people that follow me, yourself, we can create our own subscription platforms. Social media have monetization tools now, supporters and stars on Facebook, badges, YouTube premium, Luminary, Apple and Spotify premium for podcasts. Literally every channel now, you can have one or two or three different income streams. What do you think of the creator economy and how the world's going like that? I actually, I'm really encouraged. You you referenced it a few moments ago, but when we when we tried subscription business, which is a year and a half in at Netflix, it was not being done any place. It was being done with magazine subscriptions. Maybe there was book and record clubs, but that was it. And so kind of when I look back at what some of the big contributions that Netflix has made, one, of course, is you know changing how video is consumed and created. 
But it's also, as you said, it is the fact that we really demonstrated that there could be other uh, other things. So I've we've seen subscriptions going every place, and for good reason. I mean, for one, there's certainly a huge advantage in the fact that you can make the effort to acquire a customer, and then have that customer continue to pay you for month after month after month. There's also a contract between you and your customer, which says, I don't necessarily need to be on for every single interaction we have. All I have to begin thinking of is cumulatively, over time, am I providing value? And it allows us to take, as creators, to take risks, to try things, to begin to make judgments about what may or may not work and not be always thinking of, I have to be doing something which in this very, very moment is enough to have them pay me for it. From the business perspective, what I really like about uh, subscription businesses is their predictability. And that what predictability does, two big things. One, investors love it. So it allows you to monetize, to actually raise money more effectively. But the other wonderful thing about predictability is that you can begin changing the amount of time and money you spend on acquiring a customer. Before, if I spent $10 to acquire a customer, his very first and only transaction had to get me back more than $10. But now if I know this person is going to be paying me $3 a month for three years, you know, that's $100 of value. So now maybe I could spend $20 or $30 or $50 acquiring that customer. And I think that's changed the way that we as creators market ourselves. We're willing to take a longer view. We're willing to spend more to acquire a customer than we get back from them in that very first interaction. It's, it's funny um, thinking about this because I think a lot of people think companies like, say, Blockbuster or Kodak or other famous companies that didn't pivot with the times and kind of, you know, went a bit extinct, if you like. They should have seen it coming. Why didn't they see it coming? They had loads of time to see it coming. And I was listening to Total Rethink, which is a book by David McCourt, who's becoming a friend of mine. He's a billionaire who I interviewed on my podcast. And he says that a lot of companies, when they're um, more mature, they hold on very tight to the way it's done because they, they've got so much to lose. They don't want to take the risks of the young guns because they can't. Um, and so they have this almost fallacy that the way we do it is better or they hold on to it or they're delusional about the way the market is changing. Did you find that with uh, Blockbuster? I think that's completely true. I mean, certainly we sit with Blockbuster, but I'm in a total agreement with him that that is exactly what brings down all these big companies. And in Blockbuster's case, you know, they did see it coming and they did recognize how powerful a model would be of online plus stores. And quite frankly, at Netflix, we were terrified they would respond that way because that would have crushed us. But they were in this situation, they were a $6 billion in revenue company. So even though they might have said, wow, it'd be kind of nice to have an online business, they certainly weren't going to put their A-team on it. They were going to leave their A-team on the business which was bringing in $5.99 billion. And why would they put some of their best people on a business which at its best day could have been a million dollars a year? And that was the best day. So they kept waiting and waiting. And of course, as soon as they began going direct, all of their all of their franchisees would panic. And and the same thing happens with every big company. They, they, they see where it's coming, but they're locked in. They can't risk that revenue. Mark, a lot of my community, 
are quite up for starting their own subscription platform. So what tips can you give them on starting, you know, a, a basically a content platform and getting subscribers? Well, obviously, the first thing to do is you have to start. Don't don't study the problem forever. Don't try and design something you know in advance is going to work, because if you've gotten to the point, you know, in advance, it's going to work. You're probably too late. Probably someone else is doing exactly what you want to do. So the best thing about subscriptions is it's yet one more of those things where you can iterate your way to success. So if you're sitting there and obsessing about, do I do it at $6 a month or $3 a month? Do I do it on my own or do I do it through a platform? Try something, put something out there and see what happens. The beautiful thing about subscription businesses is if some customers don't like you and don't sign up because they didn't like your offer, learn from that and try something else. If, like I said before, once you have subscribers, don't feel, oh, I can't experiment because they're expecting a certain thing. That's not true. You have a longer term relationship. You have to recognize that if you try things that people are upset about, you may have to go back or make address it. But my feeling is always be trying things, always be testing things, always be challenging yourself. And if you don't start, um, you'll never uh, get any place. All right, there's my there's my inspirational, uh, high level bullshitty kind of pitch. The specific <laughs> thing I recognize, I recommend, is that sometimes you have the opportunity to do various degrees of commitment. In other words, do you offer someone a free month? Do you offer them a free week? Do you say no? You pay up front for a year. Oh no, you pay up front for three months. And so I'm going to recommend something tactically, which may seem counterintuitive. Go for the option that gives the customer the most degree of flexibility. Not necessarily because it's customer focused, because what you want to understand is as quickly as possible whether you're doing a good job or not. So when people do things like put things on, you pay a month, pay a year in advance, or you pay six months in advance, or, or you're committed. Uh, you go, isn't this great? Uh, look how many customers, look at the cash flow I have. The problem is then all of a sudden you get to three months or six months or a year where their term is up and they cancel. And you go, what's wrong? And they go, well, this has sucked since the first month. I just didn't have an option. You want to have someone have the opportunity to say no quickly because that's the best indicator you can have of whether you're delivering value to them or not. Back to your comment about looking for the epiphany or the story moment. People don't think about that. They think, oh, Netflix, it disrupted, and that's the common thing. But um, a company being distracted, having shareholders, if they did, having their own business problems, their own challenges, because um, people just assume they weren't quick enough. But by from what you're saying, they were quick enough. They just didn't figure out a way to do it as well as you. Yeah, right in the midst of their competition, all of a sudden, um, there was someone who was kind of doing a takeover, not a takeover, but a green mail where they bought the stock and then threatened and they had to buy that person out. And then ultimately they said, we can't afford to put the cash on this. And they pulled the plug. I mean, there's a lot of lucky, lucky, lucky breaks. But, you know, part of the reason I wrote that, wrote the book, you know, that will never work is to show that this was not something that just sprung forth overnight, fully formed. You know, that will never work is about these first critical three or four years and all the things you have to do. And the fact that we weren't a big company, we were a tiny little startup. Um, 
it tries to show how something like this actually comes to be. Right, I'll tell you something that fascinates me, Mark, and surely everyone who's going to build a subscription platform, the price sweet spot. Was there any logic or was it just random testing in the Netflix model, which I think everyone recognizes the lower fee, higher volume, but of course then they're creeping it up. Yeah, no, it's obsessively tested. Uh, it's fracking. It's basically being willing to do these tiny little tweak changes because the volume is so big that even very small adjustments can have huge consequence. And listen, we're talking about pricing, but it's way more than pricing. It's what do you get for that pricing? What does the offer look like? How many concurrent users can you have? Um, I mean, it's, it is an immensely complicated business and they're doing two types of testing. They're doing what I would call this incremental, this fracking testing where very, very small tweaks in the signup process and what order things come in make huge differences. So they're obsessively testing that, but they are always also doing breakthrough testing where they're making very, very large changes in the program to see if they can have a big step function change in something. Because otherwise you just increment yourself, you continue to gain, but then someone makes a big step and gets way ahead of you. And I think what you're trying to do is make sure you're doing both at the same time. And what, what was the logic of being such a low price point to start? Well, to start, it wasn't a low price point. When we launched our subscription business, it was 1995. So very expensive. And partly that's because we had very, very few customers, partly because we had very, very high prices. So you're trying to find something which you can charge more for than it actually costs you to do it. But to your point, Netflix has a tremendous advantage in its scale because what was really happening when you look at what Netflix decides to charge, when you look at what any company decides to charge is it's now almost all how much are they prepared to spend on content. And if you are having trying to be a low price leader and you have a very small subscription base, you have no money to spend on content and you're going to lose for that reason. Netflix has an advantage is that with 200 million subscribers, the amount of cash that that throws is tremendous and that can be put toward content. So they can find this balance between a price point, which works, but yet generates enough revenue that they can afford to spend dramatically larger amounts on content than anyone else does. And I don't, again, I don't work there now, so I don't, not, don't have my hands on the exact numbers, but I think it's going to be $16 billion this year, $17 billion on content. That's just a remarkable amount. And uh, what about retention? Um, what tips could you share on how they've managed to increase retention of members and lifetime client value? So it fundamentally that it's a content game now. I mentioned before that one of Netflix's big advantages was that they were a software company and viewed themselves as a software company for so long. But that transition had to take place and it did take place. And I think that crossover was maybe four years ago when they had more employees in Hollywood than they did in Silicon Valley. And the content game is what retention is all about right now. I mean, there's customer service pieces of it, but it's driven by content. And 
they've recognized that there's two requirements for content. There's acquisition content, which are the big tent pole blockbuster, not capital B, but blockbuster uh, major releases because those generate the buzz. Everyone's talking about Tiger King. Have you seen Tiger King? And oh, <laughs> shit, I guess I have to subscribe to Netflix so I can not know what everyone's talking about with Tiger King. So there's big or squid games, big, big things that everybody sees. But however, once you've acquired someone, to your point, you have to continually feed them. They have to always feel they have something great to watch. That's the content piece. And Netflix has a very interesting formula where essentially it doesn't all need to be squid game, massive uh, release things that everyone sees because all of us are different. And something can be watched by a small number of people as long as the price to make that content is commensurate with the number of people watching it. So again, you're looking for a simple one-word answer, how they manage retention. So the simple one-word answer is content. But once you get beyond that, it's a very, very complicated formula for always ensuring people have something to watch that they want to watch. One last piece on this is from the beginning, from day one, we recognized we could not be focused on being a DVD business. We could not be focused on being a streaming business. We had to be focused on being a connecting people with great stories business. That's what Netflix has been focused on since April 14th, 1998, and they've never stopped. And retention fundamentally is having people feel that that fills that place for them of helping connect them with good content. And Netflix competes, you know, they don't necessarily see themselves competing, uh, you know, with Amazon or with Apple or with Disney. Uh, you know, Reed Hastings jokes that they compete with sleep. They compete with TikTok. They compete with um, Fortnite. They compete with all the ways people choose to spend their time. And if you're not delivering value for how someone wants to spend their time, uh, you're not going to retain your customers. Um, and why are you not there anymore? So I have purposefully not said, why did you leave? Because I'd just like you to tell the story as it happened. But why are you not there anymore? What happened? Well, as I hope you've picked up from just this brief time we've uh, been doing this, is that I'm, I love that early stage of companies. I love the fact that you come in and there's no obvious path where your job is to figure it out, to find that missing puzzle piece, to sit around this table with really smart people solving really complicated, interesting problems. And one of the things, if you're lucky, you figure out about yourself is what am I good at and what do I love doing? And I was fortunate that I found out pretty early in my career that I loved that early stage struggle. Like Netflix, as I mentioned, was my sixth startup. Mm. And I will modestly say I've become pretty good at it. And Netflix eventually did begin to grow up. I mean, we did have an IPO six years in and we were all of a sudden had some scale and we had a repeatable business model and we were able to attract these unbelievably talented people to come work for us.
And so even though I realized at that point after the IPO that I still loved the company, you know, it was like a child and I, I wanted to right wrongs and fight its battles. But I also kind of came to the realization that I didn't necessarily love the problems that I was solving anymore. And quite frankly, that I wasn't very good at it. And I decided this is probably, if I really want to be successful, I should be doing the things that I love to do. Yeah. And I don't think those things are at Netflix anymore. Sure. And so I began this almost year-long process, year-and-a-half-long process of gradually working my way out of a job. Mm. And, and now I've really, you know, now for the last 15 years, I'm the luckiest guy you'll probably ever meet in terms mm. I do get to spend my days every day solving really hard problems with really smart people. I get to do the thing that I'm good at and that I really love doing. When people say serial entrepreneur, I'm not sure they understand the definition. I feel like out of many people I've met, that would define you quite well um, because you've had so many startups. So do you just want to talk about serial entrepreneurship and, and why so many startups? You know, it's like being a, a, a carpenter. You have a set of skills and a, a person who's a carpenter or a, works in construction, they can't build a house and then they finish building the house and then they go off and do some brain surgery <laughs> or they go off and sell some insurance. They go, okay, that was fun. Okay. And then all of a sudden they go off, let's build another house. Mm. And for me, it's always been obvious that that was the fun part was having these ideas in your head and you can't stop them from coming. Yeah. I mean, it's equivalent to you're walking down the street and you see a little box with a puppy in it and you look around and go, why is there a puppy here by itself? And where's the owner? And oh, this poor guy, he must be hungry. And you can't help but pick it up and take it home. And ideas are like that. You can't abandon them. They wedge their way in their in your head and they consume you. And the only way to put out that fire is, oh, OK, let's try. Let's give it a shot. Um, and that happens once after the other. And blissfully, startups don't last that long. Either they hit it, you know, and Netflix certainly hit it uh, at six years in or seven years in hit it. Uh, my most recent company, Looker, uh, a data analytics company, that took about six years, but that hit it. But some of them don't. Some of them go two years, a year. And you go, okay, in some ways you're sad to see it go. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, this is awesome. Because mm. I have these other six ideas I want to try. Yeah. So how many startups have you been involved in, Mark? Uh, I've been an operator. There's a Silicon Valley term, but I don't like that one either. Um, I've been an operator in seven. Yeah. Uh, and But the thing is, once I left Netflix, I kind of said to myself, whoa there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> I might be time to maybe try and find a model which is a little less intense. Meaning, you know, doing startups is you're kind of all in. You don't necessarily work all the time because I do work really hard at having balance. But intellectually, you're all in. You're thinking about it all the time. You're responsible. Um, and once I left Netflix, I said, I'm not sure I want to do another startup. But once you have that compulsion, once you can't help but pick the puppy up, um, you need to feed that addiction. And the way that I've done that in the last 15 years is I 
work with other early stage companies. I'm a mentor to help other people make their ideas go real. So I've had seven where I'm an operator, really hands-on in charge or almost in charge, but I've had probably a dozen where I do what I was called deep mentoring, where I spend so enough time that I can really know the entrepreneurs, know the founders, know their partners, know their board, know their employees, know their product, their competition, because you need to be that deep if you're going to give, I'm not going to say advice, if you're really going to help someone in a meaningful way, other than pattern recognition, superficial advice, yeah. you really are trying to emulate that feeling you get when it's your company of coming in. And as I've said already, where you sit around the table with smart people and get to help solve really hard problems. And you can't do that unless you really understand the hard problem. Mark, I've had a bit of an epiphany here. This has been a great little piece there, thank you. And I just wanna share it with everyone because like I said, lots of my community either have or want to start their own subscription model. And um, in the creator economy, that's easier than ever. You can just set up on Facebook supporters or Patreon or Kajabi or somewhere like that. But what you said about having that flagship piece that gets everyone talking and then you have the consistent ongoing content. Well. About three or four times a year, I'll do a challenge, a, a 10x your social media following or a make cash challenge. And I might get one sixth total of my overall user base join announcing that challenge. You know, I might get 500 to 1,000 out of 6,000 or something like that. And I hadn't really thought it's because that's the thing that creates the buzz that everyone wants to join for. And then, of course, after that, once they're in, they'll stay if the content is good. I'll tell you something with, yeah, go on. Oh, no, I was going to say how right you are. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, I always, the analogy for me is it's like, it's like, I was a geology major. So this is, pardon me for this geeky answer, but it's like geologic processes, which is that 99% of the movement takes place in 1% of the time in these big cataclysmic events. You know, my, my, um, I have a, I know someone who is pretty active on TikTok, pretty successful on TikTok. And TikTok is one of those things where you don't get uh, 3 million views every time you post something. You get something with 3 million views every 10 times you post something. But all the new subscribers, all the new followers, pardon me, usually follow those breakthrough pieces. And then the rest is what keeps people from unsubscribing, unfollowing. And so you need to have the occasional genius and then you need to have enough to keep people around. So I'm just echoing exactly what you said. Could it be that there's probably a lot of people who are in a job who are very unhappy and they're stuck in that job because they feel they've got no other choices? And then let's go with um, your phrase about maybe the glorification of entrepreneurship. But that could give a lot of those people hope that they could do something that they actually really enjoy without so much fear and with a bit more knowledge and guidance and mentorship from people like you so that they could have the courage to start the thing they love to do. I absolutely agree with you a thousand percent. That is the right reason. Mm. I don't want you to pick take away for a second that being an entrepreneur isn't the best job in the world. Um, it, it, it's fantastic, but I want someone to do it because of the things you're describing, which is 
you get to self-direct your day. You get to pursue the things you're curious about. You're not working for the man. You're not, uh, you have this incredible, you get to work with really great creative people. You have a good time. You can have your own balance. Mm. Those are the reasons to do it. Not because you think I'm going to get rich or I'm going to be famous. And I'm really, uh, you know, I, I mentioned a couple of times now about the work I do with students. And um, I, I do the work at this one particular university where two of my kids happen to go to college. Um, and it also happens my brother went to school there, who's now like a big managing director at a bank. And so he comes to this school to recruit people to go into banking. And I come and tell them about how great it is being an entrepreneur. And we <laughs> joke about it, that we are fighting for people's souls. <laughs> And, and, you know, he, he, he's way better armed than I am because he's luring them away to get these $100,000 a summer internship type things. So not really, but seems yeah. like it to them. And I'm saying, come here, live five to an apartment, eat ramen. <laughs> but, but, you know, some people, Maybe if, if once eyes light up at that, then I know I've got them. Yeah, great. I've never asked this to um, someone who's run a lot of businesses before, and I feel like I should have asked this way before, so I'm going to ask you, Mark. But um, my guess is if you've done a lot of startups, you've probably lost some of your own money and you've probably lost some of other people's money. But you, you don't here look like a person who's living in fear of losing people's money. Um, so how do you deal in your head with essentially other people's money and the responsibility of managing that well when you're starting a business? Oh, I absolutely live in fear of losing other people's money. Uh, I, I almost never put my own money into a startup. Um, it's just a nature. I'm putting my time in, which is way more valuable than my money is. Um, and so other people's money is helpful because it helps validate that you're staying uh, aligned. But and here's an important one is the, the thing that I've gotten as I become more successful is I'm able to ensure that we're aligned on outcomes. And what happens is when you take outside money, this is no longer about you anymore. You have an obligation. This person almost, well, it's, uh, friends and family is different. But once you take professional money, they're not doing that because they like you. They're not doing that because, oh, we want to give Mark a shot. Mm. They want their money back times 10. Yeah. And that can sometimes lead to divergence of outcomes. Um, so you are always thinking about, wow, I have a responsibility here. And in fact, there's a really, here, I can actually close with this brief comment, because in many ways, this sums everything together, is uh, there was a point at Netflix, and it was, and I talked about this fairly honestly and vulnerably in That Will Never Work in the book, but uh, where Reed Hastings, who was at that point, was not part of the company. He was my biggest investor and wanted to came in one day and said, Mark, I'm worried about your judgment and your ability to continue to run the company. And at first I thought he was firing me. Uh, but what I eventually realized is that what he was saying was this company will be stronger if we run it together. And what that did is made me really become introspective about what was going on here. I had this dream of being the CEO of the successful company 
And I thought I was on track to that. But now I realize that there was actually two different dreams going on. There was the dream of me being CEO, but the successful company part was no longer my dream anymore. It was my employee's dream. And to your point, it was my investor's dream. I had this responsibility to other people to do everything I could to make this company successful, even if it was perhaps at odds what I wanted personally. And I, I could not argue with Reed that it would be a stronger company with both of us running it together. And it took me a little bit of time to adjust to it, but I did then say, Reed, join us. He came in as CEO. I stepped over to be president. And we ran the company together. Mm. And there was ego involved, of course, but ultimately that was such a great decision because that led to this renaissance at Netflix. It led certainly in the since I even left Netflix and Ray ran it by himself, amazing outcomes. But it all came, it all boiled down to this is not about me anymore. It's about money and dreams and making other people successful. 